You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Crossing Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people. That means that when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Today's Bible reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 27 to 28. I will be reading from the CSB version. Please follow along in your own Bibles. The passage will also be displayed on the screen. David said to himself, One of these days I'll be swept away by Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape immediately to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me everywhere in Israel, and I'll escape from him. So David set out with his six hundred men and went over to Achish son of Mark, the king of Gath. David and his men stayed with Achish in Gath. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. When it was reported to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Now David said to Achish, If I have found favour with you, let me be given a place in one of the outlying towns, so I can live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? That day Achish gave Ziklag to him, and it still belongs to the kings of Judah today. The length of time that David stayed in Philistine territory amounted to a year and four months. David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times they had been the inhabitants of the region through shore as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he did not leave a single person alive, either man or woman, but he took flocks, herds, donkeys, camels, and clothing. Then he came back to Achish, who inquired, Where did you raid today? David replied, The south country of Judah, the south country of Jeramalites, or the south country of the Kenites. David did not let a man or woman live to be brought to Gath, for he said, Or they will inform on us and say, This is what David did. This was David's custom during the whole time he stayed in the Philistine territory. So Achish trusted David, thinking, Since he has made himself repulsive to his people Israel, he will be my servant forever. At that time, the Philistines gathered their military units into one army to fight against Israel. So Achish said to David, You know, of course, that you and your men must march out in the army with me. David replied to Achish, Good, you will find out what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very well, I will appoint you as my permanent bodyguard. By this time Samuel had died. All Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah his city, and Saul had removed the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines gathered and camped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel, and they camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine camp, he was afraid, and his heart pounded. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him in dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets. Saul then said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so I can go and consult her. His servants replied, There is a woman in Endor who was a medium. 
Saul disguised himself by putting on different clothes and set out with two of his men. They came to the woman at night, and Saul said, Consult her spirit for me. Bring up for me the one I tell you. But the woman said to him, You surely know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you setting a trap for me to get me killed? Then Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, no punishment will come to you from this. Who is it that you want me to bring up for you? The woman asked. Bring up Samuel for me, he answered. When the woman saw Samuel, she screamed, and then she asked Saul, Why did you deceive me? You are Saul. But the king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? I see a spirit form coming up out of the earth, the woman answered. Then Saul asked her, What does he look like? An old man is coming up, she replied. He's wearing a robe. Then Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Samuel asked. I'm in serious trouble, replied Saul. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has turned away from me. He doesn't answer me any more, either through the prophets or in dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what I should do. Samuel answered, Since the Lord has turned away from you and has become your enemy, why are you asking me? The Lord has done exactly what he said through me. The Lord has torn the kingship out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. You did not obey the Lord and did not carry out his burning anger against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will also hand Israel over to the Philistines along with you. Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me, and the Lord will hand Israel's army over to the Philistines. Immediately, Saul fell flat on the ground. He was terrified by Samuel's words and was also weak because he had not eaten anything all day and all night. The woman came over to Saul, and she saw that he was terrified and said to him, Look, your servant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to do. Now please listen to your servant. Let me set some food in front of you. Eat, and it will give you strength so you can go on your way. He refused, saying, I won't eat. But when his servants and the woman urged him, he listened to them. He got up off the ground and sat on the bed. The woman had a fattened calf at her house, and she quickly slaughtered it. She also took flour, kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread. She served it to Saul and his servants, and they ate. Afterward, they got up and left that night. Well, desperate times call for desperate measures. And that's certainly true for our story today. We see both David and Saul in the most desperate state they have been in. And we see them both take desperate measures. But we've all been desperate, right? There have been moments in our lives where we have been utterly hopeless. For me, it was Valentine's Day, 2018, uh, pre-pandemic. I was dating Grace, my now wife. Uh, It was our first Valentine's Day as a couple, so I really wanted to impress her. I know she loved seafood, so I took her to Donovan's at St. Kilda Beach. And she ordered this seafood pasta dish that's filled with shellfish. Prawns, Morton Bay bugs, mussels, everything. 
The weather was nice. We had a lovely date. It was a nice sunset. And then it came time to drive her home. As I was driving her home, she suddenly started coughing. She told me her throat was very scratchy, which was strange. And a few minutes later, her lips were getting swollen. Then her voice became hoarse. She realized she was having an anaphylactic reaction, which was surprising because she was never allergic to seafood. That was her favorite food. And we didn't have an EpiPen or anything, so we needed to rush to the hospital. Uh, she told me she might only have a few minutes if her throat swells up and she can't breathe. So I was panicking, driving, looking at Google Maps. It was another 15 minutes to the nearest hospital. And then the worst happened. She was struggling to breathe. 15 minutes to the nearest hospital, and she's gasping for air. And in my desperation, I sped past the speed limit and ran through all the red lights. Now, I know for some of you, that's just normal driving. That's probably how you drove to church today. <laughs> but, for, but Grace would tell you, I drive as fast as a snail. But then I was desperate. And there was very little that I would not do to save Grace. And when it comes to this text, there was very little that David and Saul would not do to save their lives. But each of their actions came with a cost. Now hopefully, by the end of the sermon, we'll see that in our desperation, the one we can turn to is the Lord. Uh, today we'll explore the text under three headings, David's doubt, Saul's sin, and God's grace. Let's enter the story. So where we are now, David has been running from Saul since chapter 18, fleeing from city to city for nine chapters, having no place to rest his head. Uh, some people think this pursuit probably lasted four years, four years of being effectively homeless, always having to pack up and move before Saul catches up. Understandably, David was exhausted. Let's see what he does. Look at verse 1. David said to himself. David's doubt begins by turning to himself rather than God. Which is a shame because he usually turns to God. Uh, back in chapter 23, when Keilah was being attacked, instead of asking himself what to do, he inquired of the Lord. But in this situation... He only asks himself. Listen to his words. One of these days, I will be swept away by Saul. Which, if we've been reading, is not true. In chapter 16, the Lord anointed David as king. In chapter 23, Jonathan reminds David that Saul will not lay a hand on him because God is with him. And just last week, in chapter 25, Abigail reminded David that he's saying, My Lord's life is tucked safely in the place where the Lord your God protects the living. And David believed as much. In chapter 26, 
David affirms his confidence that the Lord will strike Saul down. He doesn't need to lift a hand against him. But why does he all of a sudden have these doubts? Well, he has these doubts because he's waited for so long. And he has these doubts because he's human. How many of us talk to ourselves the way David does? One of these days, I'll be swept away. I'll be swept away by my anxiety and sadness. I'll be swept away by my overwhelming responsibilities. One of these days, I'll be swept away by my sins and folly. One of these days, I'll be swept away. It's hard not to doubt, isn't it? Even when we know the gospel. It's hard not to doubt when we're desperate. So what does David do when he's racked with doubt? He hatches a plan to save himself. He, by going to a defeated enemy. He goes to Gath. Now, Gath strategically makes sense. Gath is a Philistine territory, so Saul wouldn't be able to pursue him there. And David was right. He got the result he wanted. Verse 4. When Saul found out he was in Gath, he stopped pursuing him. David, his men, and their families got the relief they desperately needed. But it's ironic, isn't it, where he's seeking refuge? Do you remember Gath? See, Gath is where Goliath is from. His name was Goliath of Gath. David, who defeated Gath's champion, now seeks refuge in Gath's king. David, who once said, it is not by sword or spear, but the Lord who saves, now trusts in the sword and spear of his enemy rather than the Lord. And it seems that because of his doubts, he has taken a backward step here, at least. But to his credit, he does use his time there for Israel's benefit, uh, although it's through deception. Uh, David asks Achish for a city that him and his troops can stay in, feigning humility, saying he doesn't deserve to be in the same city as the king. Um, He asks for a city, but it's probably because he just wants the freedom to do what he wants to do outside of his watchful eye. So Achish gives him Ziklag, And look at the comment at the end of verse 6. It still belongs to the kings of Judah until today. In his exile, David was actually conquering cities for Israel. The first was Ziklag, which God gave to Israel, but Israel never conquered until now. And he continued to raid Israel's enemies from Ziklag. He attacked the Geshurites, which Israel failed to defeat, and he attacked the Amalekites, which Saul failed to finish off. David is still fighting for God's people, even in his exile. But he does do it through deception. He tells Akish he's raiding fellow Israelites and their their allies. He's lying, but for a good cause. But this is not the only instance where this happens in Scripture. 
In Exodus 1, midwives lie to Pharaoh to save babies. And in Joshua 2, Rahab lies to the Canaanites to save Israelite spies. In a sense here, David is lying to save Israel by raiding their enemies. What are we to make of this? There's actually going to be a question in your BLT studies this week about the morality behind David's deception here, which is going to be pretty interesting. I'm sure someone's going to come up with the Nazis and the Holocaust survivor thing, lying things out. That will be an interesting discussion to get into this week. But what are we to make of this? Well, I think in David's case, though he's fulfilling God's instruction in taking hold of the land, the situation he put himself in actually comes not from faith, but from doubt. And as a consequence of his deception, as it is with most lies, you become trapped. And that's what happens, right, with lies? We tend to lie to take control of a situation, but in the end, we get entangled by it. Uh, when I was still working uh, at one of my firms, we had a property conveyancer. Her sister struggled with drug addiction, and because of that, she was financially in ruins. So to help her sister, our property conveyancer resorted to lying and stealing. Uh, she took the deposit money from, for a property from one of our clients and transferred it from our trust account to her. At settlement, she covered it up by using deposit money from another client. And since we had a steady stream of property business, she would just keep covering up the deposit holes from new clients. But this lie consumed her. She was always anxious. She never wanted me or anyone else to touch her files, even if it was to help her. Always afraid that she would be found out, trapped in the lie of her making. Until one day, one of our staff noticed a weird transaction, traced it, and uncovered everything. She lost her job, and a lien was placed on her house until she paid back the money. She lied to take control of her situation, which is unfortunate. But in the end, the lie controlled her. And such it was for David, too. Look at chapter 28, verse 1. The Philistines are now gathering their military units as one army to face Israel. A showdown is coming, and David is about to be caught out. He has to continue his deception until the battlefield, and then he'll have to choose what he's going to do. Attack Saul or betray the Philippines, Philistines. Now, I know we'd like to think the best of David, but based on the message last week, we can see that David's mercy is wearing thin. And that what better way to destroy all your enemies than in this war? However, that would leave his integrity as king in question. So one of Israel's king is an exile, and he's subject to their enemies. What about the other one? What about Saul? Well, in contrast to David, in desperation, Saul at least appears to be going to the right place. He seeks God. He inquired of the Lord, but God did not answer him. 
It seems harsh, doesn't it, for God? In his fear, Saul is actually coming to the Lord. Why doesn't God be gracious and answer him? Well, probably because he has a track record of not listening when God speaks. In chapter 13, he didn't wait for Samuel, and he made offerings that only Samuel should make. In chapter 15, he didn't obey God in destroying the Amalekites for their sins. Saul forfeits his right to hear from God when he treats God's word as dispensable, something that can be disregarded. I wonder if some of us here struggle with guidance as well. We feel lost. We feel confused. We don't know which way to go, and we feel like God isn't guiding us. When in actual fact, there may be some very clear instructions God gave in Scripture that we are completely ignoring. That sin that we continually turn to, or that grudge that we cannot forgive. See, the truth is sometimes it's not that we're lost. Sometimes we don't want to be directed. Because when God directs us away from sin and folly, we refuse. See, friends, the only way to be found when you're lost is to be with God. To be found is to submit ourselves to God. A sheep is found not when he knows where to go. A sheep is found when he is with his shepherd. And here's how we know Saul isn't really turning to the Lord, but rather trying to use God or manipulate God to save himself. Here's how we know. When God doesn't answer him, the first thing he does, he goes full-on breaking God's commandment in search of relief. Saul turns to a medium. And what's tragic about this is he actually removed mediums and spiritists from the land. And in this, he was keeping God's laws against divination, as seen in Deuteronomy 18. Now, it doesn't tell us when he did this, but I'm assuming this is when he was still a king faithful to God, when he was with Samuel before he was rejected. This sin was banished from Israel because of Saul. But in his desperation, he turns to it now. And what's tragic about this is that he defeated this vice already. He got rid of it. Yet he succumbs to it again. But we know how that feels too, don't we? Our old sins, the ones that we previously conquered, creeping up when life gets hard and things get desperate. Suddenly, the website or video you remember from long ago begins to tempt you again. Or that bottle seems to offer relief from your sorrows. What we once conquered is now at our gate. Sometimes we choose to let them in. That's what happened to Saul. Like David, Saul also turns to deception. He changes his clothes to disguise himself and goes to Endor, a Canaanite city. So like David, Saul enters into enemy territory and acts like a Canaanite 
in order to escape his desperation. He lies to the medium about who he is. But here is the big lie. Verse 10, he assures the medium, invoking the name of the Lord, that no punishment will come to her from this. But in Leviticus, the Lord says a medium must be put to death. The penalty for witchcraft is death. And Saul's invoking of God's name is blasphemous here because she's telling her the opposite of what God actually says. By doing this, Saul has tragically become the opposite of who he was. Instead of being a king who reflects the image of God, he now reflects the serpent in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3 verse 4, when it came to eating the forbidden fruit, the serpent told Eve, No, you will certainly not die. That's it. That's Saul, isn't it? Not only is he committing a sin deserving capital punishment, he is lying to the medium as to the approval of that sin. And of course, the consequence of this is judgment. Look at Samuel's word to him when he raised them up. Verses 18 to 19. You did not obey the Lord and did not carry out his burning anger against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will also hand Israel over to the Philistines along with you. Tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me, and the Lord will hand Israel's army over to the Philistines. What terrifying words. God's rejection of Saul is final. His kingship has been stripped from him and given to David. And further, his fate is sealed. He dies tomorrow with his sons. Hearing those words, Saul fell to the ground. And we would too, right? A powerful prophet like Samuel rising from the dead to confirm that we will die. He rose to bring a message of judgment. And in one sense, this message could be for us too, couldn't it? Now, you may say, I've never practiced witchcraft or consulting a medium, so no, this message is not for me. But remember what Samuel told Saul earlier in the book, in chapter 15, when he was rejected as king. Samuel actually says, For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. When Saul just disobeyed one of God's commands, Samuel projected his future, what he would do eventually. Our disobedience is like the sin of divination, and our defiance is like idolatry. Our sins subject us to judgment. Maybe it won't literally be the next day, but because of our sins, tomorrow we will be with Saul and his sons, dead. But there was some mercy extended to Saul. The medium gave him a last meal as you would give a man getting executed tomorrow. One last meal, but not enough mercy to be spared from God's judgment. Now let's take a moment here and zoom out. We focused on David. We focused on Saul. 
But how about Israel? How about God's people? The Philistines are coming for an all-out war with them. Yet where are their kings? One of them is with their enemies, subjected to them. And we don't know whether he'll join them or not. And the other is with a medium, paralyzed by fear, having the certainty of his demise. Neither king is in a position to save Israel. Neither is in a position to lead Israel. But there is a greater king in the midst of all this, a king overall, the Lord God. See, chapter 19, despite David's doubts, the Lord in his kindness delivers David from his situation. And it's ironic how he delivers David. It's not through supernatural plagues, but he actually delivers David through his enemies. Verse 4 in chapter 19, the Philistine commanders don't trust David to go with them in battle and force Achish to send him home. And of course, they had good reason to mistrust David. They remembered David killing their champion, Goliath. Uh, And back in chapter 14, this happened. A group of Hebrews who used to be with the Philistines betrayed them um, when they were fighting Jonathan. So they had good reason to mistrust David. And in God's providence, he used their memories to reject him. And then there's this strange uh, exchange between Achish and David. Achish apologizes profusely and tells David to return because the commanders don't want them around. And David has to pretend like he's disappointed. But in actual fact, he's probably not. It's like when you're an introvert and a social engagement gets canceled because someone is sick. You kind of go like, oh no, I was really looking forward to it. I hope you guys get better. But then you've already changed into your pajamas and you're grabbing a book uh, on the sofa to read. So David was spared from joining the battle between Israel and Philistines. A battle that would have made him complicit in the death of Saul. He wouldn't have had a clear alibi as to whether he killed any Israelites in that battle. But because of God's intervention, David is miles away when Saul dies, maintaining his integrity as God's king. So there you have it. Two kings in desperate situation. David's doubt leads him to be subjected to his enemies. Saul's sin leads him to be subjected to judgment. And of the two, David receives an ironic deliverance. But the end of this chapter leaves us a bit uneasy, doesn't it? We kind of see a progression of David's flaws from last week. There we saw his mercy wearing thin. But here we see that when times are desperate, David doubts. And he turns, himself, he turns to himself rather than God. When times are desperate... David deceives to save himself. Which means, as a king, unfortunately, he is not completely trustworthy. Now, if we cannot trust David when times are desperate, then who can we trust? Well, there's another king that came after David, one greater than him. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus, in his time of desperation, when he knew that he was going to be captured by his enemies and he was going to be subjected to God's judgment on the cross, turned not to himself, not to sin, 
but to God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So he asks for his deliverance, but unlike David and Saul, his priority was not his deliverance, but God's will. Even in his desperation, Jesus turns to God. And in his time of desperation, Jesus never succumbed to deception or lying. Knowing full well that if he confesses to being Messiah, it will give the people who hate him grounds to kill him. When the high priest asks him whether he is the Messiah, the son of the blessed one, Jesus firmly and clearly says, I am. And yet, and yet, the consequence of his faithfulness to God and his honesty was not his deliverance, but ours. Unlike David and Saul, Jesus was not seeking to save himself. He was seeking to save us. He saves us, ironically, through sin and death. He saves us by being made sin and by dying on a cross so that we may be forgiven and have eternal life. So we can trust fully in him. What does this all mean? Application to A is in our desperation, we can trust in Jesus. Not because he might save us, not because he will save us, but because he has saved us. Uh, as I was speeding, uh, trying to make it to the hospital, uh, I had a sinking feeling that we wouldn't be able to make it in time for grace. I was at the end of myself. I was the end, at the end of my tether. So I said a quick prayer. God, help us, please. God, please save us. Then suddenly, as we were turning and going down one road, Grace nudged my elbow as she struggled to breathe and pointed at the window. Out of nowhere, there was an ambulance at the side of the road. They stopped there to help another person. So we immediately stopped in front of the ambulance, talked to the paramedics, and they gave Grace the adrenaline shot she needed to breathe again. She was then taken to the hospital for monitoring and discharged the morning after. That night will always stand out to me as a night I learned not only is God able to save, He is willing to save. Now, He may not always save us from death, but because of the cross and resurrection, those in Christ will always be saved through death. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is trustworthy, not just when things are easy, comfortable, and cozy. You are the God who is most trustworthy, even in our times of desperation, even in our times of doubt, and even though we may sin because of Jesus Christ, we can turn to you in whatever situation and circumstance we're in. 
So, Father, please help us turn to you today and help us turn to you every day, no matter what we're facing. In the name of Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand as we sing um, the song in response to what we've heard today.